Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I can see your soul at the edges of your eyes. It's corrosive, like acid. You got a demon, little man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tandler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the Patriots suck. The Red Sox are a bomb and a ball. The Celtics might be too soft to win a championship. My daughter is away at college. I mean, do you think maybe the Gnostics are right? <laughs> there is a an evil demiurge just like right right behind you. All you have to do is to take some peyote and you'll realize this whole time there's been a demon controlling like everything you care about. Boston sports. Yeah. yeah. It's it is a little rich for somebody, you know, with our success uh in the last 20 years to to say that, but it right now is not You can't compare suffering. Like I, you know, stubbing my toe sometimes feels like theodicy, like I'm yeah. yelling to God. Yeah. <laughs> like there's It's a refutation of the existence of God. You and I were talking about the duo two oh, yeah. factor authentication being the bane of our existence every time we have to log in. <laughs> Totally. That's the kind of evil we deal with on a daily basis. What benevolent God would allow <laughs> everything to just be like fine, but then a year later, now you have to do duo authentication or whatever the fuck. Like just always, every time, for no reason. Like, yeah. Every once in a while, those things will say like, hey, if this is your device, just tell us and you won't have to do this anymore. But it, it never, it never yeah. sticks. It never <laughs> sticks. Yeah. Um, so today we are going to... Complete our discussion. Complete. You can't complete a discussion. No, you could just stop it. We'll, we'll stop it at the end of this episode. <laughs> it, at least right now, it feels like the first episode, which I think turned out pretty good, but it was more our kind of disorganized spilling out thoughts about the book. Yeah. And now yeah. we're. Gonna... Although, make no promises. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> there is no order to this world. So we'll see about that. That's in the second segment. But in the first segment, what do we got? We're talking about two papers that have to do with cheating and dishonesty. And I saw these on Twitter. Somebody, Jay Van Babel, to give him credit for tweeting out the first one, um, which is about cheating on Wordle, which just had a specific significance uh, to me because you and I, of course, play word games every day. Uh, quite a bit of time is devoted. To <laughs> quite a bit of time dedicated to word <laughs> games. Uh, and so we'll talk about that. And then there's a, another paper on uh, honesty across countries, like around the globe. And um, uh, it's a, a paper about what percentage of people return a wallet that they found or try to contact the owner of the wallet they found. But let's talk about Wordle first. Okay, so this is 
Alexandra Wormley and Adam Cohen from Arizona State University. And the gist of this paper is that you can look up an index of how many people cheat on Wordle, where here cheating means specifically Googling for the answer, uh, just like blatant, like not mm -hmm. even uh, searching Google for Wordle answer, today Wordle or Wordle word today. And uh, they can make an estimate of geographical region for how much controlling for like the population and for the number of people playing Wordle using whatever fancy statistics, an estimate of how many, you, like how many people are cheating in these various ge geographical regions. And they could also come up with an estimate of religiosity and this other construct called tightness that, that is uh, like how punitive the state is and how culturally permissive it is. I don't know much about that one, but um, yeah. basically they find <laughs> that the more religious the states, the less they cheat. Right. So the Northeast, like the godless yeah. Northeast, the people who like to hold themselves up as the moral <laughs> exemplars of like the universe, just like we've been building towards the moral rectitude of, uh, you know, New England <laughs> and New York. And look at you guys with world <laughs> cheating. Well, I feel like you I feel like the uh, there's some people in the South who feel that way about themselves, but uh, I'll leave it there. More for me, it was more like, aren't these people who pride themselves on their intellect? You know, these are like New York Times crossword puzzle, like uh, yeah. sitting at the at the kitchen table on Sunday morning. You know, um, and no, if you look at the heat map, it's like the brightest red right around. Like Vermont is the highest cheating cheating state. <laughs> Those motherfuckers, they're all white and they just cheat at Wordle. <laughs> right. And if they so then they looked at the the correlation between cheating behavior on Wordle and religiosity and it's like negative 0.56, which is big. That's like a big effect for it to be that that negatively related. But I would um, say that like if you're in Mississippi or Alabama, you're not that likely to be like, you know, hey Billy Bob, check out my like Wordle streak. Uh look yeah. look at how many threes I have. Like, you know, right, like that's right. not gonna be that impressive. Whereas you people <laughs> hold Billy yourself Bob, you're the one who up. said Billy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you people hold yourself up as like really smart and clever and quick on your feet and you know. You bring up something that's that's important. So, like, they tried to control for for how many people in the state play um, Wordle, and what you said made me think, yeah, like the people there there are more people with Wordle streaks or whatever um, yeah. in in the Northeast, but that should be controlled for just by number of people playing. I, I would think if you play every day, but the way that they had to control for that was they used Google searches. Or no, sorry. They looked at tweets, like how many people in the state tweet about Wordle, and they use that as a metric for how many people play Wordle. And I it's think just that that's as just, the French say, "n'importe quoi." It's just like <laughs> anything goes for like, oh, how should we measure this? Oh, let's look at number of tweets. Like just unbelievable. yeah. And so, so that seems like isn't there like a Twitter effect here that that uh. Uh, more people in the Northeast are going to be on Twitter. Not like if you're playing Wordle in the South, aren't the chances that you tweet about it lower than if you're in the Northeast? Yeah. Is this a good journal? Uh, yeah, it is. It is. It's a good journal. In fact, they probably require uh, the data to be shared. Um, 
Yeah, they're like one of the journals. This is Perspectives on Psychological Science. They they care a lot about like uh, open science and all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure I'm probably missing <laughs> missing something here. But here's what I really wanted to ask you: Is it cheating? I know that there are rules uh, that we might hold ourselves to, but is this cheating? Is it fair to say that this is like some sort of metric of of moral behavior? I don't think they're saying it's metric of moral behavior. It's just well, cheat. Cheat is a thick, like it's a thick word, right? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying, like the wordle cheating is related to religiosity, and, and like you were telling us, you were just saying that we were like such hypocrites. You know, that's uh, like I don't understand. Like, why do you think it's not cheating? Like, in what because sense? it's a game. Like, because it's you. It's just you. Who are you cheating? It's like playing golf on your own and writing a different number on the card. It's like if nobody's playing with you. Yeah, I guess that depends then. Uh, for, well, first of all, if you can always just guess the six words, they give you the answer at the end. So yeah. like if you really don't want to have it look like you didn't fail, if you don't want to have it look like your streak got broken or that you got a yeah. worse score than you did, like, that's the only way to do it. That's the only reason I can think of to do it. Except that, I, I you know, on the other hand, like, I, I see what you mean. It's sort of like when you're playing chess against the computer and you make a stupid mistake right. and yeah, you take it back, you know? Yeah. I remember my dad used to do that. And I'd be like, well, why are you playing it then if you're just going to, you know? And he's like, shut <laughs> the fuck up. I mean, he was kind of right, you know? <laughs> or what about, so how do you feel about, we are talking a little bit about this, about... uh looking up the answer on a crossword if like you're stumped well yeah this like because i do that um and i'll do it without much compunction compunction yeah. yeah yeah it's purely just something for my own but that doesn't solve the whole crossword like <laughs> looking up the <laughs> right. riddle would you know like, no, but like without this it, it is might more not. like pushing the button <laughs> that just says reveal the whole puzzle you know <laughs> right so if somebody did that every day like they they loaded up the new york times app and they just said reveal like i wouldn't call that cheating i would call yeah. it not playing the game <laughs> you right. know right <laughs> Unless they were going around like showing people, you yeah, know, right. like that their streaks are there, which I think you people do, but I just don't think goes over that well in Birmingham. Jackson. But by the way, you can't both like have weeping and gnashing of teeth about Boston sports and identify with New England in that way and then just throw New England under. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> well, that's my form of cheat. <laughs> It's my like, looking up shit on. I was board. born in Argentina for fuck's sake. <laughs> okay, I so will say th that like I for the the streak thing I get because as you know yeah. I have a very good word hurdle streak going. Yeah, and there was a really hard one, and I was down to the last word. And but you can't really look up word hurdle anyway. No, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nobody's putting it on but like i remember having that thought is this really how this is gonna go down you know <laughs> yeah i think that streak i think you're right that the streak probably is the driving force here mm -hmm. it would be interesting if we had if like we're i'm sure new york times has the data like it would be hard to put the two together but i bet you people only look it up when they're at the fifth at the last guess right yeah probably because yeah. they don't then yeah that would further research may reveal <laughs> when they cheat. This is NSF grant 401. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want to talk about the other one? Yeah. Okay. So here is, this is published in science. So you can ask if that's a good journal. Um, 
This is a paper that came out in 2019 that somebody tweeted about recently, but I had never come across it. And it's looking, it's called Civic Honesty Around the Globe. Um, and it looks at, they ran experiments in 40 countries dropping more than 17,000 wallets containing, uh, some containing money and some not containing any money. The measure of honesty here was whether somebody returns, not returns, somebody emails the owner of the wallet because they have the contact info very clear in the wallet. In fact, they were clear business card wallets, so you didn't even have to open it to see their contact info. And some of them contained money. All of them contained a key and contact information, um, maybe ID. This is, again, across 40 countries. They manipulated uh, the, whether there was money in there, and it was about 15, $14 of U.S. money uh, sort of adjust, so that purchasing power of that amount in all these different countries. And they got this nice estimate of all these 40 countries of what proportion of these wallets the, the email gets sent. And so when you look, it's a, it's a nice little graph that has one side of a line is the wallets with no money in them. And the other side is wallets with money in them. And what you get is a pretty big effect across the whole sample Wallets with money are returned more often than wallets without money. Um, yeah. with often by a lot. Often, often by more by, than double. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So at the top of the chart, no surprise here, Switzerland, Norway, Netherlands, <laughs> Denmark, Sweden, Poland. Because they all have money because of their either Switzerland, like dirty money that gets laundered through there, or the Scandinavians, just socialism. You're right. The rates... At the top are like, we're talking like 80% of these wallets got yeah. a contact. Um, like the Danes, the if it has money, like that you can get, you can just drop your wallet in Denmark and you'll be fine. <laughs> right. It's just pretty meet nice. somebody. Yeah. <laughs> at the bottom is China, where the wallet with no money was like below 10%. Um, somebody said maybe because they don't use email in the same way. Who knows? But but, get, but if it has money, it's higher than a lot of countries. Yeah, it's like that's right. It's twenty percent. It's like seven percent to like twenty one percent. Um, and then heading up the the bottom of the of this list, Morocco, Peru, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Kenya, Malaysia, the United Arab Emirates, which kind of surprised me. I guess they don't chop your arms off anymore. Indonesia, Ghana, <laughs> Turkey. India, Mexico. And then in the middle, you have like uh, Portugal, US, United Kingdom, you know, those middling countries. Israel, like yeah, like, and, and yeah UK. Yeah. We're all bunched together. Yeah. Romania, I'm su a little surprised, is, is as high as it it's is. Russia's, there. for all you people with your Ukraine flags in your Twitter profile, <laughs> Russia is way higher than the United States, in, in Israel, UK, uh, Canada, even fear. Canada. Yeah. Don't you think it's just fear <laughs> in Russia? They're just afraid. Like Putin's going to track them down for yeah, uh, or with some it was some mobsters wallet, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, um, it be some oligarch like some yeah. nephew some. with thirteen dollars <laughs> in their clear wallet. Yeah. Um, uh, so one thing that popped out uh, to me in looking at this chart is that while South America is is represented, um, Argentina is kind of the middle of the pack. And then toward the bottom, you get Chile, 
and Peru. Peru is very low. Yeah, Argentina Those, is much higher than any other South American it's country. It's weird. I would not have predicted. Well, Chile, I would have predicted as low. But those countries <laughs> have this like hilarious thing where there's barely any difference between the no money and the money. Like having money in the wallet is not causing people to be more likely to return it. So like, are they just taking the money? Like I... I mean, it's a weird dynamic that they return it with the money. And with it, the money, it, yeah. Mexico is the <laughs> only country where it's way lower if you have the money. Like, yeah. if there's any money in it. And Peru is also like that. Those are the only two countries. Yeah, Peru is like, they're identical. Like, they're just overlapping. It's like, it makes no difference. Mexico has flipped around in, in this crazy way. And I, I was thinking, like, is it that, I don't know why it would be Mexico specifically, but I can see one reason for being less likely to return a wallet with money is that you might get accused of having stolen some money. Like if you returned a wallet with $13 and somebody said, but there were $100 in here, um, where's the rest of my money, buddy? So yeah. maybe they're just afraid of getting like accused. But, okay. but that, that happens only in Mexico. <laughs> sort of weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where you yeah. want to take that. But uh... <laughs> I'm not taking it anywhere. I already, <laughs> I've already said too much. I, I'm just, you know, I was a little proud of my Chile and Argentina and uh, South yeah, South yeah. America in general. Not, not giving a fuck about the money. Okay, so I'll say they did one more follow up in just Poland, the UK, and the United States, where they did instead of thirteen dollars, which might not be enough, they put ninety five dollars and the equivalent um, in money. And in all three of those countries, the the rate goes up like by 10% easy. So the moral of this story is if you're going to lose your wallet, put uh, like a, a lot of money in it. It's the only way you'll get it back. <laughs> I wonder if it's, it's like at that point you feel like you're getting tested either by some like annoying psychologist or by God. Right. God does do things like that. He does. He does. <laughs> you don't like people don't talk about it, but he'll it like could, yeah. test you. It could be that those people thought that the $94 person was going to give him a little reward. Like they're just going to be like, here's a solid, you know, take, take a 50. But you could have like a $94 reward if you just kept it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know, so I like, like the way you think. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you Peruvian? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm Mexican. Uh, <laughs> We'll stick with the the wordle study. (laughs) Uh, We'll be right back to talk about Blood Meridian. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know when you're trying to fall asleep and your brain just won't stop talking? You want to just relax, sink into the bed, and let your thoughts dissolve or drift away peacefully, but instead they're racing back and forth like a Tasmanian devil, some stressful thing you have tomorrow, a tense conversation you had earlier, movie quotes, podcast ideas, issues at work, old dog problems a three-month-old overdue car registration, you name it. I can relate to a lot of this. Well, it turns out one great way to make these racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. I know so many people who have turned to therapy and the benefits are so apparent dealing with trauma, just understanding yourself and your relationships better, learning coping skills to deal with the vile bureaucracy and stresses of everyday life, therapy can turn your life around. 
So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. They design it to be convenient, flexible. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Bad Wizards. This is that time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for all the ways in which they support us. We've been doing this for 11 years, and I guarantee you that we would not have lasted this long were it not for the ways in which our listeners reach out to us. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. If you want to talk to us, if you want to uh, communicate with us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can also go to Twitter and tweet at us at Tamler, at Peas, or at very bad wizards. If you want to engage in discussion with other listeners um, who might have similar ideas or who want to argue with you, you can go to our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards. You can find us on Instagram at very bad wizards. And if you have it in your heart to give us a rating, preferably a nice one and a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts and help other people find the podcast. You can also listen and subscribe on Spotify and even rate us there as well. And if you want to support us in ways that go beyond just communicating, we really appreciate that too. You can give us a donation one time or recurring on PayPal. You can buy some swag. You can buy Very Bad Wizards t-shirts or mugs. And finally, you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. And if you do that, you won't just be um, giving to us. You'll be giving to us and getting something hopefully back in return that you appreciate and that you like. If you become um, $1 and up donor, you will get all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also get access to little beat compilations that I've made uh, over the years. There's seven of those. At $2 and up per episode, you get access to all of our bonus content. That's bonus content going back as far as when we started doing Patreon um, you uh, will get access to our Deadwood podcast, The Ambulators, that we love doing. We're almost done with season two. And you'll also get access to Tamler and Robert Wright's Overton Windows podcast, uh, where they debate controversial shit that I don't really ever want to talk about uh, with Tamler. So I'm glad he found a buddy uh, to do that. Uh, you'll also get access to my psych podcast series with Paul Bloom, 
uh, that's ad-free as well. If you donate at $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic, um, like the one that we're doing now, uh, came from our Patreon supporters, their suggestions and their votes. You also get access to our five-part Brothers Karamazov uh, series. You get my intro psych lecture videos, and you get a couple of Tamler's lectures from his series on Plato's Symposium. And finally, at $10 and up, you get to ask us anything and we'll answer it. Um, so $10 per episode and up, uh, you will ask us a question. We will answer it on video and put that out if you want to see us. Uh, if not, you'll get it on audio. And in fact, everybody at $2 and up gets to listen to those as well. So thank you again for uh, all of your support. We really, really appreciate it. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Um, we are going to dive into the second part of our discussion of this book, which I think we've both in the time since we've last talked, I don't know, we've had a few conversations and like it's kind of a singular experience reading this book and thinking about it to this extent. I don't know, like I, I'm kind of amazed that I could get this old and still feel this way about a book like I feel like this is how I felt when I read like Dostoevsky or something for the first yeah. time and to some extent like this is high praise like when I really went back and dug into the Odyssey and the Iliad which I hadn't done since high school like that was also just this mind-blowing experience like there's and like this I feel like this is up there I you know yeah. So here's the plan, at least the plan that we think we have. We're going to talk a little bit about a few characters in the Glanton gang. And then we're going to, we each kind of wanted to talk about a few scenes. There was a lot of overlap there. So then we'll dive into a few key scenes and then that'll be it for today. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. Maybe we will just do, that'll be the next ambulator. So it'll just be the blood... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what would it what would it be called oh, i don't know but you know we could do a mccormick mccarthy there's yeah. there's so much material although i don't know i, I don't know if anything the delawares i feel like you and i are like the delaware <laughs> we're just we dragged, we which one of us gets dragged our... away by a bear <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's certainly one of us is gonna die I, I could totally see myself getting just dragged <laughs> away by a bear at some point you know we're good trackers, I think. <laughs> you know, I'm the worst. But yeah, sure, sure. Uh, All right, let's start with the kid. Do you want to start with yeah. the kid? Yeah. Yeah. We like we touched on on the kid's um, character a little bit, right? Like, and I mean, here his moral character. Did we in the last episode? Yeah, and especially in relation to the judge, I think. Yeah. Right. Because the judge has taken this keen interest in the kid. And and that's, I think, one of the big kind of little puzzles of the book is what the judge sees in the kid. And there are various times where the judge explicitly... And I think it, it starts with the scene where the kid is running away from the fire he started. Yeah. And the judge just staring at him like he's already noticed something about him. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think you in the last episode... As I was editing, I very much resonated with you saying that like the thing that the judge 
is bothered by with the kid, but also impressed by is he seems like he has some autonomy in the way yeah. these other people don't like the, all these other people come into contact with the judge and to greater or less, lesser extents become like, like him, this kind of just yeah. gruesome, horrific, but gleeful violence, though they're right. usually not as gleeful as him. But the kid is always a little bit standoffish about that. And I think the judge kind of notices that early on. And, I, you know, I don't know. It's interesting in that opening scene where he sees them, maybe the judge doesn't just sees another, you know, another person to fold into his weird cult. Yeah. Okay. Let me run something by you. Um, okay. Cause as I was thinking about this, so I had been thinking about what exactly the judge sees about the kid and what we know about the kid and what we know about the kid early on, given his history and the first actions that we see him perform is that he seems to have a real affinity for violence. Like he is not bothered at all. I think that the judge might have been drawn to that. Like the judge wants somebody maybe as part of the gang, like you were saying, he likes those kinds of people. But then the judge sees this is somebody who is uh, not just callous, but also has this capability for good, this capacity for good. And by dint of that, his evil is a choice. Like just because he's capable of these acts of charity, he is more autonomous in his morality. And I, I feel like the judge the whole time is struggling to make him an agent of like the, he wants the kid to be like him and just be indifferent to the universe. Um, but do it with this autonomy that you were just talking about. Um, and so he's struggling when the kid shows over and over again throughout the book, this willingness to be good to people. And we could talk about those scenes, but yeah. I, it's funny. I've kind of gravitated in the other direction. I kind of disagree to some extent with the premise of what you're saying, which is that he has this special affinity for violence. I think he has an ability to do violence, certainly not an aversion to violence, but I don't think he has an affinity, a particular affinity for violence. He is. So one of the things like we had this little disagree, slight disagreement in the last episode about just I, I had kind of thought that maybe the kid disappears a little bit during the middle of the book, not disappears. He's not the focus of the novel anymore. And sometimes he's not even in the scenes. You didn't feel that way. And I think we're both right in one sense. Like you're right that uh, there's not that many scenes where he's just gone. Like we're, we have no idea where he is, but he is absent in a lot of the scenes of like brutality and violence. And I remember thinking, like, I don't think the kid, like, participated in a lot of these things. And I think it's true. He, There are only, like, two or three people that the book says that he kills for sure. Yeah. The first two are, like, the Yuma, like, way towards the end of the book, just in self-defense trying to get away. And then the little Elrod, right? 
And I think that's pretty much it. And then, you know, like I, I was looking that up because I was interested. And yeah, like I think those are the only ones. So he is kind of conspicuously absent in a lot of the violence and brutality. And in that sense, I guess I, I feel like he doesn't have a real affinity or taste for violence. He just doesn't have anything. It's like the only path for him that he can see. Maybe, like he was born into it. He definitely is not bothered by it, though, that he can ride with the Glanton gang and and participate in these things without really, like, objecting. I mean... No, uh, right. But he, yeah. So here's His only what, actual resistance comes at the very end. But the judge, as the judge says, detects in him someone who's not all in on what they're doing. Maybe, but that's... Kind of what I'm saying is that like the that it that the evil would be a choice for the kid makes him more appealing as a target for the judge. Whereas like somebody like Glanton, who we'll talk about, is not a pensive violent person or like a uh, he just seems to like be a, a, a sadist. But here's I think this set the stage for what I was saying. And you may be right that this changes later in his life. But the book opens um, in describing the kid and when he says that he's born and that his father was like um, a drunk um, who left when he was 14. Um, his mother died in birth and he says, the father never speaks his name. The child does not know it. He has a sister in this world that he will not see again. He watches pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history present in that visage, the child, the father of the man. So I feel like there is something that McCarthy thinks that is in the heart of this kid. And then he goes on to describe like how he engaged in fights with anybody and everybody that he could. Um, yes. I completely agree with you up till like he gets, you know, into the Comanche war and it's yeah. true. Like I don't get me wrong. He is present at some of the most gruesome scenes of violence and he doesn't actively resist. Even Toadvine resists more than him. Right. Like, uh, at least token resistance uh, more than he, he just doesn't seem to really enjoy it once he gets like really at any point. So can I just say really quickly, just in, in uh, like agreeing with what you're saying, I think that from the beginning, McCarthy is saying something like what we're both trying to get at, because he also says really within that when he's 14 years old, that um, that his eyes remain oddly innocent. Yeah. Right. So it's both like it's a fight in him. Yeah, I think in some ways, I think the non-autonomous part of him is more pulled towards violence. And there's a couple of things that like I think as we talk about the scenes that this will come out. But one scene that we're not going to talk about is very early in the book where he um, this is before he joins the Mexican army where he meets an old man. You know what I'm talking about? That scene, uh, and the old man says to him, "Lost you way in the dark, the way oh, of the, the hermit." Yeah, the hermit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, said uh, the way of the transgressor is hard. God made this world, but he didn't make it to suit everybody, did he? And then the kid says, "I don't believe he much had me in mind." I said right. the old man, but where does a man come by his notions? Where, what world has he seen he liked better? I can't think of better place, better places and better ways. That's what the kid says. It feels like this is the only thing that the world is offering him right now, given like his, you know, his father, his mother, his, uh, yeah. Yeah. and, and yeah. everything. And it's like, I guess I'm just doing this cause I'm good at it. Like I can yeah. get into a fight with Toadvine and like, you know, live to tell about it.
Yeah. This guy and, with no ears. And like just be balls out, like not, he doesn't yeah. seem scared of any, of dying of anything. Um, he just wants his boots, you know? <laughs> the, uh, the hermit, by the way, after reading the, the tarot card scene that we're going to talk about later, um, the hermit is also a tarot yeah. card. Um, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> just predicts. There's so much like that. We'll talk yeah. about that as we get yeah. into that. Uh, should we talk about some of the good things that yes. he does? That yes, because were... the first thing that I, is in my notes is when during the Comanche attack, um, there's a guy that has an arrow through his neck and yeah. the kid is just, his impulse is to help him out. So he goes to try to help him. Um, he's willing to like help him get that arrow out of his neck, but he, he realizes the guy's dead. Um, and so he can't help him, but that he was moved in that way is yeah. like an early indication. Um, and there's a mirror of noticing that somebody's dead later on <laughs> when he's the yes. man. Yeah. Oh, with the uh, old woman. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird. Yeah. It's sort of like, like the, the violence of the world. It's like a very, like your goodness can't stop the fact that like this shit's going to happen, you know? Yeah. They're all dust and like dead. brittle yeah. and uh, kind of nothing anyway. Yeah. 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 Because you mentioned that team, I think we're going to not end up talking about it, but I went back and just looked at like I, that whole reading the end, I realized felt like it was a dream. Like, yes. because yes. I can't like all of a sudden he's 28. There's no clear demarcation. Like now he's 28. He's uh, older. And then he's, he's no, he's in his 40s. Yeah, yeah. No, no. But, but in, oh. I think when he finds the woman, he's 28. I think. Uh, but this is yeah. how reading this book is. It's like you, you're struggling to like keep track yeah. of the details and something as potentially huge as the passage of uh, 30 <laughs> or 15 years can go by in like a paragraph and yeah. you just you know absolutely uh, yeah. yeah it's literally like three pages or something where it goes yeah. from from him getting healed by the doctor from his injury <laughs> and then he's the man like but i think he's just, in 28 there's that like little middle period but yeah I'm not you're sure. right in the spring of his 28th year he set out with others yeah. Yep. It's a little, it's, yeah, it's the mezzanine of, of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's but crazy. before, like, he's covering all these years. He saw men killed with guns and with knives and with ropes, and he saw women fought over to the death whose value they themselves had set at $2. Yeah. Like, well, this is the thing about him, right? He also helps this guy out. What's his name? Sproul. Uh, yeah. After the Comanche attack. Yeah. He has um, like an infected arm. He's unwilling to let yeah. him go. He keeps saying, save yourself. And he's like, no, I'm not going to leave you. Right. Right. Yeah. He has this thing where he will not let a person die. Yeah. And I think he actually struggles to take somebody's life. Yeah. You know? I think so too. Um, you're right. He doesn't often kill at all. Like I yeah. Like I think he's really even with uh Elrod, he's trying to avoid yeah. killing him. Like yeah. the whole time. Uh, there's a scene where he takes he's the only one who will take the arrow out of David Brown. Yeah. After they've been ambushed, I think by the Apache. Yep. Um, he, he. I think before that, he tries to help uh, an injured guy, McGill. Um. And, oh yeah. And Glanton orders him not to, and just shoots. He just shoots McGill. Like this is where Glanton. There's like four injured guys, and Glanton would rather just shoot them all so they die and not have yeah. to worry about them. Um. He also there's that scene where he. 
And I think the judge is kind of distantly involved with it, this. He picked the arrow yeah. that meant he has to kill uh, Shelby. This Okay, um, can we talk about this a little bit in, in more detail? Because it yeah. fits with this. Like, it really reminds me of Chigurh's, like, uh, you know, coin flipping here. Because Shelby is, you know, injured and they want somebody to kill him. But the way that they're going to choose is they're going to have them essentially draw straws. Like the judge clearly wants the kid to be among the candidates. And the kid reaches in, sees the judge looking at him, yeah, and then switches his choice. Yeah. But nonetheless gets the red arrow. So it's like yeah. it's just faded. He's just That was faded. the battle. The battle was won by the judge. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. But not the war. Or maybe the war. That's maybe a question. Maybe the war, yeah. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of these cases, when you really think about it, like this guy, it's not maybe doing him a huge favor to save him at this point and no. not to just mercy kill him. But it is a choice, like you said. Yeah. And he's just like, I'm not going to I'm not going to like kill a guy that I've been riding with, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. I, um, when we were talking offline, I said something about like the, the Huck Finn case that's well known in moral philosophy where yeah. Huck Finn is has an allegiance to Jim. But he believes that he should turn him in as a slave. Like he yeah. believes that's the right thing to do, but he can't help but try to save Jim. Now that's used as an example of somebody being pulled emotionally. But the kid is like, it's not like a war between emotion and reason. Mm -mm. It's just these two sides of him. And I think that that's just like the, the sides of uh, like a human Spirit, I don't know. It sounds cheesy, but like those are just two ways that he has of being. And but and do you think he has a side that wants to kill Shelby? That's what I'm not no, sure. Yeah, no. In that case, no, no. Yeah, I think like he doesn't th like killing any innocent people. I think he's just annoyed that he has to deal with it. But like, I kind of feel like he makes a firm decision. Like, I'm not going to yeah. shoot this guy. Like, I'm not yeah. going to give him a gun. I'm not right. going to give, like, I'll give him a little water, but not too much. But a little water at that point is, you know, that is very philanthropic. And, yeah. and he hides uh, him under a bush, I think. He hides him under their bush. Now, like, if he gets found, the same thing happens. Then he catches up to somebody else whose horse is yeah. injured and he also just walks with him he gets off his horse and walks with them he's really just not willing to give up on anybody except right at the end when the glanton gang is murdered uh by well yeah murdered justly <laughs> by the, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, i don't want to that doesn't i don't want right. to make that sound pejorative he just makes the decision there like a clean decision i am breaking from the judge right now these people he's he feels bound to them but not towards the judge i think it's that's like a like, building resentment toward the judge it occurs over time like, like it's not like it's that explicitly stated but you're getting this sense that by the time he splits with the judge he really has had it he, you only get any sense that he's an antagonist of the judge really when he's the man in the bar at the end. He, uh, there's other people that seem to, more than him, seem to be uncomfortable with what the judge is doing. Uh, we can talk about that. Uh, yeah. There's something the judge says to him uh, at the end. He says, you of all men are no stranger to that feeling, the emptiness and the despair. It is that which we take arms against. Is it not, is not blood the tempering agent and the mortar which bonds? The judge leaned closer, 
closer. What do you think death is, man? Of whom do we speak when we speak of a man who was and is not? Are these blind riddles or are they not some part of every man's jurisdiction? What is death if not an agency? Uh, And whom does he intend uh, toward? This is getting at uh, some of the stuff we were talking about in the last episode, but I, I think this idea is this kid has that feeling of emptiness and despair and the the world is meaningless and violent and vile. But I am not going to participate. Like the judge's response to that is to dive into it and yeah. control it and lead it. And the kid has no interest is in doing yeah. that. That, that. That's the thing that drives the judge crazy. That's why the judge is still focused on him 30 years later is – Like, I thought I had you pegged. It's like what you said at the beginning. I thought I had you pegged in that town. And you were never like that. You were never, you you absolutely kept your distance from it, even though you rode with us. And unlike a lot of other people, never thought of abandoning us. Yeah, totally. And I think that the judge, from everything else we learn about the, the way the judge is, toward the world, like his obsessive cataloging of the natural world. So he'll do things like, you know, he was copying down like the images of like this artwork um, on the on the walls, but then destroy it. He'll destroy it. He's like consuming the world. Like when he makes the notes about something, he then destroys that thing. And I think that's why that guy is so freaked out about him drawing his yeah. his picture, right? He at some level senses that this is ju- the judge's way of consuming, devouring the world around him. Because um, that's the judge's relation to the world. He wants everything under his control. And, and he can't kid, catalog the kid. No. He cannot catalog the kid. That's why that last scene, he envelops Until him. the end, maybe he catalogs <laughs> like, him. He consumes yeah. him. Like, he devours <laughs> yeah. the child. Like, yeah. So, so that leads to this question then. Like, does he fail in the end, the kid? And yeah. maybe he does. And if he does, why does he fail? You know, is it because he killed El, Elma, Elrod? Why <laughs> can't I remember? His name? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that he fails. There's no winning. Like, I think that's the whole point. There is no winning. Like, the kid resisted. And I think that it's, it's uh, a good thing that he resisted the way that he did. But there is nobody that comes out of this world alive, right? we're all going to be devoured by something and there's no way around. Like, I don't, you know, like McCarthy can't redeem this kid because this is not a really a moral tale. This is a tale of the heartlessness of the, of the universe. So like, I think the kid was, was, you know, shadow boxing with the, the universe. And that's, I think that's good. Yeah. So I guess I, I shouldn't say, did he fail in that sense? Like he didn't win and cause there's no winning. You can't right. shadow box with the universe. Like the yeah. universe will win yeah. in this in this novel anyway. But yeah. there's this scene, uh, you know, the scene where he does break from the judge yeah. after the Yuma and he's with the ex-priest Tobin and the judge says to the priest, weigh your counsel, priest. We are all here together. Yonder sun is like the eye of God and we will cook impartially upon this great salacious griddles, I think, or salicious griddle. There's a lot of words like that in McCarthy. Salicious griddle, I do assure you. I'm no priest. 
and, and I have no counsel, said Tobin. The lad is a free agent. Hmm. And then it says, the judge smiled, quite so, he says. Huh. Yeah. So that's then. And I guess my question about whether he failed or not is, is he a free agent in the end? Or does he, has everything right, been right, right, leading right. him towards that porta potty uh, right. where he's going to get devoured by the judge or whatever happens to the him? The Jakes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And you bringing up the killing of the kid at the end um, makes me... What do you think about that? So, so there's this scene at the end where uh, the 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 kid is now the man, and he's in his late forties, much like me. Um, so I totally relate to this. Yeah. <laughs> and some kids, some I remember those days. You know? <laughs> and one of them in particular is like testing him in the way that like sometimes the youth do, where this this kid, the I youth. think that's what you say <laughs> when you're in your late forties. That's how you refer to kids, yeah. the youth. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's true. The man totally can see that this kid is a bad seed and that he is really just trying to poke the bear. Like he's really trying to test, like he's saying, I don't believe that you actually killed any engines like you say you did. And like he's just pushing every button. That's when he says what you were saying earlier, like I'm trying, I'm trying not to kill you. Like yeah. this is him trying. And he tells his friends, like, keep that kid away because I, you yeah. know, like, I, I don't, I can't make any promises. But the next morning he wakes up to like that kid uh, leaning over him. And the kid has a, does the kid have a gun? He has um, a rifle. Has I a think. rifle. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, but the man gets the drop on the kid, you know, and shoots him before he can. So like, that's kind of self-defense-y, but I almost feel like that just was another, another true moment of agency. Like he wasn't. He chose that. Like, he wasn't mindlessly doing it. I, I guess I think maybe, I, I don't know. But one way of looking at it is that led straight to the, the outhouse, to the jacks. He could have figured out a way to save that kid. He says to himself, you would have died anyway. Like if you're going to be yeah, like this, that's true. if you're going to be <laughs> like that, you won't live for another year anyway. But there's... A reading where he, that kid is him, you know, like he was, yeah. when he says I was 16 before I ever got shot, the, he sees like this shit talking, illiterate orphan, essentially an orphan, which that kid is. And he has this little brother. He sees like himself in there and he lived to be the man, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so he shouldn't have killed the kid. He should have found a way to make it so that, but like this is... Like, I think the judge's point is there will always be some way to drag you into the, like, void, the abyss, the dance of uh, yeah. violence and indifference. And it, I it, think maybe if you want to say that, like, the kid failed, it's in that, not in, like, going to the whorehouse and uh, the dancing bear scene and, and yeah, staying maybe. there. But it's You're kind of convincing me that that might be. Because I think really in line with the McCarthy view of the, of the world, the universe is so determined by fate that I think that the kid was born in blood and to blood. And that's just who he was going to be maybe. And that maybe that's why he can't escape it. Um, but like you said, there's a nobility in resisting, especially with this judge having this like, uh, this beam, what do you call those beams that the aliens put on the... Like a tractor? 
Tractor beam. Yeah. yeah, like the judge has this like tractor beam on him, trying to draw him in and can't, and actually gets so frustrated with that. Whereas everybody else kind of they they either fold right at the beginning or they fold eventually. But the yeah. kid lasted thirty years or something like that. You um, know, I can't help but think that this gets us to some of the themes in the tarot card scene. I don't know. But- yeah. yeah, can we talk just quickly about some of the other yes, uh, Glanton yeah, yeah. gang people yeah, and then get to that it. scene? Because I think yeah. it'll actually be both those things go together. Yeah. Um, so Glanton, how about Glanton? Yeah, what is he exactly? So he is a everything that's in the book, you know, like kind of factually is kind of true about him. Yeah. He did lead this gang. He did go get paid by Mexican government officials to try to clear the area of Apaches. He would get get money for bringing uh, back scalps. All the Yuma stuff is true. He was killed by the humans. The judge is his second in command, but he's also, to some extent, the judge's ex- uh, second in command. He has this pact with him, but he seems different, very different than the, than the judge. He's yeah. not a philosopher. He's... Uh, his his violence is more arbitrary. Uh, yeah. He has a couple of good traits, I would say. Like what? What are some examples of a good thing that he? Like he has a dog that, unlike <laughs> like, like oh, the yeah, judge yeah, will just the... throw puppies in oh, the water. He'll sure. actually uh, like have a dog and 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 treat it well and like having the dog. Who explodes uh, the? Is it Glanton or the judge who explodes the cats when they're testing out the, the weapons? That's him. It's Glanton. Yeah. yeah he's so. not good with cats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even if he's... He, he stands up for Black Jackson at the cantina when the guy says, you can't sit here. Like, I'm happy to serve you, but you have to sit in a different place or something. He's like, anybody who looks at this crew like knows that we're not gonna like get up and move because someone tells us to and he takes his death like a man those are the only three things he takes his death like a man you know like when the yumas come in he's just like all right do it you know other than that he is like an automaton you said this about like glanton gang last time they're kind of automatons in the sense that you don't get that there's much inner life going on there's not a lot of deliberation (laughs) exactly yeah glanton gang you know yeah it's interesting you know i i think of glanton in relation to the judge all the time because i'm not sure what their pact is but glanton is such an ultimate instrument of doing (laughs) whatever like he has he's clearly a leader and clearly commands respect uh from his crew and that's hard to do like that's hard to have like a a crew of psychopathic killers who all have loyalty to you i does the kid have loyalty to him i think he does for Uh, whatever weird yeah i find it very hard to assess whether the kid has loyalty to any of these like we don't hear we don't like know that much about what the kid is thinking like clearly he's hanging out with them like they got him out of jail and i think that while he's with them it offers him some sort of something to do um the reason i say that he does is the judge when he's visit in those kind of fever dreamy uh scenes where he's in prison the judge visits him and he says you really think glanton wouldn't have killed you like I think the judge is pissed. Like you mm. never like resisted when Glanton was in charge, but now that he's dead, it's like right. that's it. Like the kid is yeah. severed from right. the group. And I think like for whatever weird reason, 
the kid respected Glanton. Like he, maybe because he just didn't like carry on as much. Yeah, he's not like a yeah. weird philosophizing child molester. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a, maybe because like, he didn't fuck children. Like seriously, yeah, you know, yeah, like or yeah. like gleefully kill children and puppies. You yeah, know? like you were talking about that scene where the judge is calling out to Tobin and and the kid after they left the gang, and you know, in the scene, it's like. I imagine it as sort of a Mad Max world where like this bald judge has like the, the idiot like on the leash next to him and (laughs) he's walking across the desert, you know, remember when the gang that Tobin tells the story of when the gang first came up on the judge, came upon the judge and he was just sitting on a rock and they ended up needing him and immediately uh, Glanton and the judge start talking and writing together. Like there is this immediate connection that they have. And I, and I keep wondering what that connection is. Is was Glanton autonomous at all? You were saying something about like how the judge doesn't care, like he doesn't care for people who are not agents. And there was there is a scene where the judge they ask the judge something, and the judge tells them the answer, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." And he laughs at them, and he seems to be laughing at them because they were so quick to like change their mind or believe whatever it was that the judge said. And it's like he was not respecting them. Yeah, that's totally right. And you, I think you brought this up last time. A lot of them will say, you're crazy or that's that's insane. Like, I don't know. But when they say it, they're kind of capitulating to it. Or whereas the kid, when he says, I don't like craziness, like that, he doesn't like that. Like he actually doesn't like this. He is taking a stand against this. uh, Like, like you people in the Northeast who cheat at Wordle, (laughs) you gussy up your like brutality and immorality in, in like these grandiose philosophical ways. (laughs) The kid and me, we just don't like that. Sorry. You just reminded me of like uh, Boston Celtics fans, like, you know, shaking the basket during free throws <laughs> um so does the ju- does glanton is glanton just a pawn for the judge like a powerful pawn that he because he clearly it seems like the judge planned this meeting like you don't meet randomly i think i was reading somebody saying this but it made sense to me like the vast expanse of the southwest doesn't afford like coincidences like you just come upon the judge sitting on a rock um yeah, yeah it seems like he planned that whole thing yeah, I think he might be like the most, like maybe the queen, like the most powerful yeah. automaton, you yeah, know, like, right. and, and I think he can also have a tiny little bit of a code. And yeah. as long as that doesn't go against that, he's fine with Glanton just deciding, I'm yeah. going to be nice to this dog. This is my dog. Yeah, I think he might be the, like the most sophisticated. He's like chat GBT four, <laughs> <Four. laughs> like not like chat GBT one, which is right. the other, like it's on right. the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, he probably gains not just utility, but maybe even some something in the friendship and that's fine for him i don't know like there's something that separates glanton you know like there's a little echo like a distant echo of the western villain that still has something redeeming about (laughs) him i guess the other one that i want to talk about just really briefly is toad toad vine yeah yeah i i feel like i don't have that much to say except that i think toad vine is an example of somebody who could have resisted yeah and even does 
some kind of token attempts to resist. And like the, the climax of that is when the judge has the little kid on his knee and he's playing with them and then yeah. scalps him like 10 minutes later and, and kills him. And Toadvine puts the gun to his head and the judge says, do it or don't. And he doesn't. And then that's echoed later where Toadvine goes to the judge. Um, yeah. Like he leaves the kid and goes to the judge. And I think like he's he is definitely an example of someone who try maybe tried but failed to yeah uh, resist the judge but he's definitely Clear failure but he's definitely a more complex moral character than the rest of the gang i think or at least we're we're told more about it he he does seem uncomfortable with like just you know just like the murder of innocence he killed like i, I actually missed this i think but he he kills the prison overseer they never say that he did but the yeah. the prisoner overseer who was like, is he like abusing the prisoners or something? But Toadvine hated him, um, and he had gold teeth, like a mouthful of gold teeth. And then a couple scenes later, we just see that Toadvine is wearing a necklace of gold teeth. <laughs> yeah. But you you get the sense that this was because the guy deserved it. So so he seems I, I agree with you exactly. Like he could have been. He's just not quite there. He's not. He just doesn't have the strength of that. This is what's special about the kid is that I think Toadvine was more talk than actual resistance, although more actual resistance than anybody else in the gang. Yeah. Yeah. Because because the kid never gets even the, until he starts shooting at him, um, you know, in the desert when he's being chased by the judge, like the kid never stands up to him like the kid's resistance is like this weird psychic resistance, you know, Yeah. It's, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And Toadvine, like, that was his time. Like, he could have joined the kid's side or he joined the judge side, and he joined the judge side. And then he got hung in, I guess, L.A.? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Or L.A. or San Diego. No, L.A., I think, yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about the Delawares, or maybe we can move on? I just think it's weird that you have these, like, Native American tribe that's part of this scalp hunting gang. And they kind of keep their own counsel and they seem like both part of the group, but then also not part of the group. Yeah, you get the that scene by the fires where where Black yeah. Jackson wants to sit with the white guys. Um, but the three Delawares and the Mexican are keeping like it's just naturally segregates and they think he should go there. I, th- you know, I thought about the Delawares being yet another instance of of. McCarthy going out of his way to say like nobody's good here like the Native Americans were fighting with each other they were happy to scalp each other as just as much as you know like the whites were scalping the Apaches or or the Comanches and you get that just brutality like men are men like these guys for some reason they're also uh, you never get inside their head like but in my head canon I'm just like maybe they had beef with some of the, the tribes um, yeah, and, and they just were like, "Yeah, we'll join up with these guys, get some money for killing these fuckers." Or maybe they're like the kid who just feels aimless and lost, yeah. and like this world is not has nothing for me, so I'll just do this. I don't know, but they at least have some kind of loyalty or community to each other. With each other, yeah. And they, we don't really get a sense of them as individuals. It really is just one of the Delawares, yeah. the Delaware. You know, yeah. like <laughs> yeah, they're that's kind of just interesting. The yeah. And they don't seem like they're like the kid. They don't seem like they're reveling in the violence. 
Do you have anything, any other characters to talk about? No, the only other characters that I thought of was the two John Jacksons, the black and the white. It's interesting that he creates just two guys named John Jackson who really are only different because one's black and one's white. And they have like a Cain and Abel thing going on where where (laughs) one of them's going to kill the other one. And yeah, black, black Jackson kills white Jackson. Kill Bill, kind right. of, and they just uh, leave his headless corpse standing yeah. by, sitting by the fire. <laughs> like, yeah. take his gun, but yeah. they leave his boots. So to me, it seemed like it was a micro that animosity between those two humans who were just sort of like different in this one way just seemed like a microcosm to like the yeah, you know, the situation we're all in. Yeah, I think so. So there's this article I came across that talks about optical democracy in blood meridian meaning that like everything is equal in blood meridian in the sense that humans rocks the uh fauna flora it's like nothing has some sort of special moral kind of dignity or anything like that i think there is a way to look at the glanton gang kind of progressive in its um <laughs> you know like they i always got the sense they liked black jackson more than white jackson yeah. they thought he was more valuable the, and anyway the fact that he like decapitates white, <laughs> white jackson, jackson like just cements it and nobody like, ever says anything about yeah it. they don't tell him to you know not sit by the fire and not and they don't even tell the delawares not to do it yeah like, uh, they don't even seem to look down in any way on the Delawares. Of course, they say racist stuff and they use the yeah, N-word yeah, they're terrible and people. All that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm sure they're racist. They just don't. It doesn't extend to like their innermost circle, I guess. Or maybe it does, but it doesn't in any like way that's not easily defeated by a swift knife to the neck. There is an interesting uh, scene where to get to back to Toadvine for a second, where Toadvine is asked, is it Bathcat who asks him if he's willing to wager on which Jackson will kill which? And Toadvine refuses. That's another yeah. instance where Toadvine is showing something like his unwillingness to be to partake in that. Yeah, like this isn't a fucking cockfight. Those yeah. are human beings, yeah. you know? This isn't uh, like we're throwing dice and uh, right. or whatever, but but there there is a kind in that sense a kind of equality to these yeah. people. They're not prejudiced because they they're willing to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, there is brutally. as you were saying it. It reminded me of Peter Singer's moral circle idea, where you have moral <laughs> regard, where like yeah. Peter Singer, you know, wants to expand the moral circle to include moral protection for all sentient beings. This is just like a, a a rock and a human. It's no moral circle. Like they're they yeah. all just have like no moral circle. <laughs> like yeah, not, it's a circle almost of not even for themselves. Like they almost don't even value their own life. You know, that's right. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and they, that's they definitely will try the to save the, try to save themselves. Like they would rather live than die. Yeah, and they will even do. But like, but like yeah, in the they, moment, you know, it's like almost yeah. just like uh, callous indifference in their decisions for the future. Like they happily walk into a fight and then yeah. you know when they're dying they're like come on help me you know like, and the kid will still help them but none of the other people none of the others, yeah yeah you yeah. wanted to talk briefly about the comanche attack um yeah only because so the comanche attack is early early on the when when the kid is with the general is it general white 
Um, yeah, or yeah, white. Yeah, when they're fighting their so the illegal war, um, and the, the, the Mexican American War is over. Yeah, and but they're continuing to like try to to try yeah. to fight, and uh, they get just brutally attacked by the Comanches, and that scene is so freaky to me. So first of all, the way that they like General White is sort of like stupidly walks into it he's like oh it looks like a whole herd of horses and cows like you know <laughs> we might have some sport yeah either. and then he's like oh but maybe we're you know maybe we're in for a fight fellas you know yeah. and then and <laughs> then through the dust they see that behind all of those were just like a, a, an army like a, a a ragtag group of of comanches and the descriptions are incredible yeah. and the right. violence is incredible and it's just like it, it's it's the level of description that in my memory I may as well have seen it. Totally. One whose horse's whole head was painted crimson red and all the horseman's face gaudy and grotesque with daubings like a company of mounted clowns, death hilarious, all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding upon down upon them like a horde from a hell more hor horrible yet than the brimstone land of Christian reckoning, screeching and yammering and clothed in smoke like those vaporous beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools just like like no it's a nightmare it's like it's a nightmare yeah it's a uh, nightmare yeah. yeah i think that's sufficient that's really what i wanted to say the other thing i wanted to say about this is there's a little comedy in this book that's not it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't happen that often but when he's with spruel afterwards spruel says what kinds of indians was them and kid says i don't know Spruel coughed deeply into his fist. He pulled his bloody arm against him. Damn if they ain't about a caution to the Christians, he said. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice understatement about. <laughs> That's good. All right. Uh, should we go to the tarot scene? Yeah, let's go to the tarot scene. I guess I'll just jump into it. They, they've picked up. They, they come across like a, a group of like performers. Like, where, where is this? Let's set the stage. Like, where is this in the story? Like, it's pretty early in the Glanton gang. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, let's see. Chihuahua. Well, they've come. They've just come out of Chihuahua, maybe with yeah, their first. Right, yeah. So it's early on in, in their adventures, I guess. And they come across a family of jugglers, like performers. I, I take it, you know. Like just traveling gypsies, like they're yeah, four of but them. Mexican version, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's an old woman, there's a man, and there's a juggler, and there's right uh, a girl. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, they, the jugglers want to ride with the Glanton gang, I guess. Yeah. Um. So that night they're camping together, and so that night it's. Glanton, who asks the juggler, do you guys tell fortunes? Yeah. And he says, yeah, actually. So he uh, pulls out some tarot cards. And the, the, the process by which they do this is that the man uh, has one of the Glanton gang pick a card, but he, they whisper. He says, like, okay, who do you want me to have pick a card? And when the card is picked, he says the card aloud and the old woman who has been blindfolded says who, 
who the card belongs to. Who picked to. it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's either a psychic thing or it's some trick like they do. Yeah, like uh, a mentalism. I was thinking like in mentalism, mentalism yeah. you do this where the way that you ask the woman, you know, who picked this? Like the, the like yeah. that it's like secret code. But yeah. so the first person to to get a, a card is Black Jackson. Black Jackson picks a card. The card is the fool. Uh, it's like a picture of a fool and a harlequin and a cat. And she, the old woman announces that it's the black guy. And so yeah. she, I guess, begins telling the black guy's fortune, but we don't, we're not privy to this. Like she's just saying it. And uh, he starts getting like anxious. He's like, what is she saying? What is she saying? And uh, the judge is like, don't worry about it. Um, and this yeah. is actually something I wasn't sure about when, when the judge says, don't worry about it. Um, but what she's saying is that your fortune is tied up, is wrapped up with ours. I think she means to say that in your fortune lie our fortunes all. Yeah. What does that, what did that mean? Yeah. I think she is reading their future. That is their fortunes all. I think the judge might exclude himself. But when he says, are you a drinking man, Jackie? And he's like, yeah, I mean, I guess. No, <laughs> no more, more than, than some. some. And she, it's like a Tamler uh, answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, totally. Uh, and then he says, I think she'd have you beware the demon rum. Prudent counsel enough, don't you think? That's how they die. That's how, like, they, they all just get drunk. Just get and drunk. eventually that's going to, like, come back to to haunt them. You yeah, know? one of the and things think... about the Glanton gang is that when they are without an immediate goal of violence, like when, when yeah. they're not, like, fighting or planning to fight or doing whatever, they, like lose it they have no, it's like they have they've lost all purpose and all they do is like go to towns and get really drunk and have sex and murder people like they, can, and, they can't yeah, handle exactly. it yeah. yeah yeah and that's just not sustainable no, i don't yeah. think and i think the judge he he kind of knows this already and i think that when he says this is a little like that optical democracy thing too now that i think of it it's like it's not because you're black that you're getting the fool yeah. it's that you're like a human yeah you know and this is what we do and eventually it will come back and bite us in the ass except for me because i never die <laughs> right yeah, exactly I'm not but like i i think you can make a case as we go through the different tarot cards that they're really accurate you know yeah no and there's something about yeah about like the kids specifically that is yeah. uh that is super interesting so that's the next person in fact it's when the the juggler the man says okay who's next it's the judge who says young blasarius yonder <laughs> and he's like yeah. what okay yeah. i i got to give uh i got to give this guy credit cuz he had something really interesting to say about this aaron gwynn he has a substack called the night does not end which is totally devoted to um, Blood Meridian. Yeah. And what he says about Blasarius, he's quoting somebody else, but this is where I got it is, that's like an arson of some kind. And he, yeah, the last yeah, yeah. the judge saw of him is when he was like participating in yeah. burning down the inn. But anyway, I wanted to throw out Aaron Gwynn <laughs> into it. Uh, but yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. The young Blasarius, the incendiary. Um, uh, yeah. So he goes over and tells the kid pick a card and like he's a little not sure but he takes one and he says that it seemed familiar to him and that's because he actually has seen that card before yeah. right and that it's when they were walking through that town that had been massacred by the comanches that you were referring to earlier um uh 
he's describing going in a house and he says, illustrations cut from an old journal and pasted to the wall, a small picture of a queen, a gypsy card that was the four of cups. And that's the card that he picks, the four of cups. And yeah. he, he turns it upside down, looks at it and turns it back and gives it, gives it back. And the guy calls out four of cups and the woman says it's the, it's the young one. Um, now yeah. that card, like <laughs> the meaning of tarot cards is a little bit like horoscopes because you can look on and find all sorts of things. But that yeah. particular image, the four of cups is a person usually with their back to a tree and there are uh, four cups in front of them. And it's, I guess, supposed to mean something like you're contemplating a change um, in your life. Did you, did you come across any of that? So I, I looked this up. I, the what what I found again, like the same, just kind of bullshit Google research is lost chances, guilt. Uh, it may also represent, this is what I thought seemed right about the kid. It may also represent becoming engrossed in oneself as a result of despair, dissatisfaction, or lethargy. Yeah. And particularly tarot cards have a different meaning if you pick them up and they're reversed. Yes. And so the reverse four of cups, like what you were saying, what I found is four of cups reversed reflects a period of introspection and withdrawal. You're retreating into your own inner world so you can concentrate on what is integral to you and what grounds you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't notice that it was reversed. Yeah, like well, it's he reversed picks- with the glanton. Like the woman says that it's reversed. The chariot is reversed. But I didn't get that it was reversed with the kid, with the kid until yeah. right now yeah or at least he he it turns could be it. both that's it weird could like be he both. has the age like his agency is he turns it around like he turns it upside down and looks at it and yeah, it's like why that's right yeah. yeah so he makes it reversed that's interesting yeah. i do think there's a kind of lethargy in the kid like even though he's like he's clearly got a lot of energy and survival instinct he doesn't have this kind of desire to make something of his life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's the thing that like the judge is trying to prey on and can't even with that, like given that the kid should be the perfect target for the judge, but he's still not. Yeah. But he still, but he has it, you know? Yeah. So he says, when the woman says, el muchacho called the juggler, he turned the card for all to see. The woman sat like that blind interlocutrix between Boaz and Jaquin inscribed upon the one card in the juggler's deck that they would not see come to light, which is referring to another tarot card of a, a woman standing between the two pillars that are supposed to be the Temple of Solomon. Um, in the juggler's deck that they would not see come to light, true pillars and true card, false prophetess for all, she began to chant. We never hear what she's chanting, um, by the way. And then the judge yeah. says the judge was laughing silently. He bent yeah. slightly the better to see the kid. The kid looked at Tobin and at David Brown and he looked at Glanton himself, but they were none laughing. The juggler kneeling before him watched him with a strange intensity. He followed the kid's gaze to the judge and back. When the kid looked down at him, he smiled a crooked smile. Get the hell away from me, said the kid. Yeah, uh, what, is he, what do you make of that? Ah, uh, man, I don't know, but it is such an, a scene of antagonism there with the, yeah. ju- the judge's dismissal. Maybe the judge is like laughing because... He is like that card is meaning like you're just you're withdrawn and and lethargic and you're not going to do anything like like the judge and nobody else laughing at him is like mockery. Like you can feel I can feel the kid's anger at at this and that the kids, the kid again, the kid staring back at the judge is a huge thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, yeah, you know, what do you make of the fact that he has seen that card before, although he says it's unfamiliar? I, you know, all I can the only thing that came to mind was, again, this idea of like fate um, being so strong in the McCarthy universe where where yeah. it somehow was bound to happen. Um, uh, I don't yeah. know if there is a deeper meaning. Like I read somewhere that this this whole thing was inspired by Cormac McCarthy having a dream where he saw that card hanging in a in a house. And, yeah. yeah. Did you do a little tarot card deep dive, dude? I did a little bit. I <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me. I ordered yeah. a tarot card deck. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! That's so awesome. Like this is you are just the mystic of the podcast. Like I pretend I can, you know, say ghosts, blah blah blah, you know, UFOs, whatever. You're the real fucking mystic of this podcast. They haven't arrived yet, but when it comes, like I'm going to do a reading. (laughs) I will be your first customer if you'll have me. Yeah, yeah. So I did, I did, I did some. I've done some before. Like they're they're really interesting. The The symbolism really comes from some real shit but to this is such a dynamic i think in the podcast it's like i'm kind of getting interested in this stuff but i'm still a dilettante you're already like way (laughs) more advanced than i am down this path you just resist it like the kid or like who knows (laughs) for some weird shit i I am down for some weird shit um uh <laughs> I was excited. I was like t- just today I was like I'm going to get I was like reading about the the different um th- like there's historically like different kinds of tarot cards and I was like reading about which one to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I could totally see that actually 100%. Uh so yeah, so that the judge then calls out that the that Glanton should have his fortune read. And we had already gotten an inkling that Glanton did not want his fortune read but the judge says it um so the judge is just fucking around with people you know like he's fucking with people i think Um, but the you know glanton did say do you guys tell fortunes he just didn't feel like he wanted it at that point but like uh right at the beginning but like he takes the card right yeah he does he takes the card but then when glanton takes the card the juggler, it says, the juggler folded shut the deck and tucked it among his clothes. He reached for the card in Glanton's hand. Perhaps he touched it, perhaps not. The card vanished. It was in Glanton's hand, and then it was not. The juggler's eyes snapped after where it had gone down the dark. Perhaps Glanton had seen the card's face. What could it have meant to him? The juggler reached out to that naked beldam beyond the fire's light, but in, do- in the doing, he overbalanced and fell forward against Glanton, and created a moment of strange liaison with his old man, ar- old man arms about the leader, as if he would console him at his scrawny bosom. Glanton <laughs> swore and flung him away, and at that moment, the old woman began to chant. Um, and then Glanton yeah. just get, gets mad. Um, yeah. Can you do a little Spanish translation here for what? Yeah. So she says she's chanting, and she's starting to say, "The chariot, the chariot, inverted." Um, the card of war, card of vengeance. I saw it without wheels on a dark river. Um, yeah. And I think that is just, and then she says, lost, lost, the card is lost in the night. Um, yeah. 
and you know, I think this is really the the fortune of the way that he ends up. You know, they do die on a river, like on a ferry. Yeah, Black Jackson uh, is pissing like on a some sort of cart with no wheels. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, when the Yuma kill him. So here's what I got about the chariot inverted or reversed. Uh This is not about Blood Meridian. This is just me looking. So the chariot tarot card, when it's not reversed, is like, it's it's almost like Plato's, like from the Phaedrus, you know, like reason is in charge of spirit Mm -hmm. and reason is in charge of appetites. And you're all working together. uh, But when it's reversed, it can... Uh, indicate that you feel powerless and lacking direction. You need to take control of your own destiny and not let outside forces determine your path. Uh, When the chariot reversed, you are still moving, but you have let go of the reins. Like, that feels like a good description of the Glanton gang, period. You know, like, they are still moving, but they have let go of the reins. Like, they're not, there's no, nothing in charge of, like, what they're doing. And, like, prudence, more certainly not morality. I mean, it was never morality, but even just self-preservation, yeah. anything. It's like, it's, compl- the outside forces are determining their path. And, like, the judge, that's what the judge likes. He seems to revel in that. It's so, yeah, totally. Absolutely. And what I, what I don't know is is it that the judge i mean that glanton did see the card and somehow Mm -hmm. like in his gut knew that this was like a terrible fortune to have read what are we to make of it just disappearing from his hand Uh, it's so weird i mean this is where the book becomes like it just is always on the border of being just magical surreal Just, you know, like, even though, like, he's a real guy and a lot of this stuff really happened, like, it's like, that's what's so cool about it, you know? You know what? We were talking on the phone about this, and I actually wrote down something you said because I thought it was, you phrased it well. Um, You described the book as cosmic and phantasmagorical. And yeah. uh, I, I wrote down those words because I wanted to like it. Because <laughs> it's Well, tr- you had said cosmic in the previous episode. Oh, yeah. You had described it like that. And uh, like, but to do that and also be this kind of historical. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. amazing. And you know what I also like is that both for this and the coin trick, you think maybe this is just like bull- stupid, like bullshit. Like, maybe it's sleight of hand maybe it's the judge maybe the judge is just a regular dude who's fucking crazy and he's just like learned a couple of tricks and says some pseudo deep things there's not a whole i mean there could be consistent with that reading i don't think eventually it's it's not but it could just be this a weird fucking guy kurtz who's right Gun to my head, well, I don't think there's necessarily a determinate answer to this question, yeah. but no. like, I don't think there's anything necessarily that makes you think he has supernatural power. No. And, you know, I mean, the woman knowing what the card was, like, we don't even know uh, that that was the card. Like, she just chants it. <laughs> she yeah, chants right. it. And, uh, and you put two, two together and you think, well, she's guessed who picked the other cards. But as I was reading it, I was like, wait. They're whispering to him who should pick the card. And like, yeah. and she's blindfolded, but I mean, yeah. it's very plausible that this is just like a parlor trick. Um, 
Which is also lost on almost all of them because they can't speak <laughs> Spanish. Exactly. So they yeah. don't even know like that they're guessing right. You right. know, <laughs> like, the, that's what the only the judge is like the pro the real. Well, actually, I mean, there's a yeah. there's a Mexican in the gang, but um, yeah, they're definitely committing to the bit if if yeah. this is all a trick because she's like crying. Yeah. She's saying like perdida, perdida, like you know, yeah. this is uh, the, the, uh, what does he say? What is malif uh, maleficio? I can imagine. Imagine, yeah, but what's like the, a like an evil, like a bad yeah. guy. Um, Maliante and, and Glanton yeah. now is about to shoot her, and the judge saves her. Yeah, and the judge describes the judge as like jumping up like a jinn, which like is a great ponderous jinn. Yeah, which is also uh, a demigod in in you know like Arabic mythology. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stepped through the fire and the flames, delivered him up as if he were in some way native to their element of the fire. So, like, if you want to say that he has a kind of demonic, uh, yeah. gnostic, whatever, oh. he's a archon or a demiurge. Like, you can definitely do that. He is too. giving you every reason to think this. <laughs> I do love yeah. the thought, and you'll. I think this goes with my personality. I love the thought that. All of this is just actually very um, not mundane, but just not. It's not the super. It's not the supernatural events that you think it is. It's just these choreographed. Yeah, kind of. yeah. Um, we're not going to talk about this, but speaking of the judge's demiurge, in that scene where that we already talked about, where he creates the gunpowder, mm -hmm. um, he uses bat guano and human urine, and uh, I couldn't help but think of there's this. Famous quote that's sometimes attributed to St. Augustine, but it's probably not him, that's in Latin that I can't pronounce, but it's between urine and feces we are born. And Freud loved this quote uh, because he thought it said something about the position that, that humans are in. Like we think of ourselves as lofty, godlike minds, but we need to remember that between urine and feces we're born, referring to like the <laughs> yeah. vaginal birth. And yeah. that will get us maybe to the next scene that we're, or an, another scene that we're going to talk about that, that symbolism of birth, um, yeah. that in that creating of gunpowder, that mixing of fire with this sort of like, I think a metaphor of birthing that the judge is doing. Um, yeah. Can I, can I say one yeah. thing before we go to that yeah. scene what? about just to like the coda of the tarot of the tarot scene yeah. is the juggler yeah. on his burrow like the next day, the next day he like moves it's to like the a front. nice grace note I it's know. a beautiful like little grace note the juggler on his burrow like like don not don quixote but uh sancho, sancho panza. Uh, panza goes and just uh falls in with glanton and they rode together and, and they were riding so in the afternoon when the company entered the town of Llanos. yeah yeah i didn't know what to make of that but it was a cool i was about to shoot your perfect. bomb or whatever <laughs> Yeah, but we're cool now yeah. for no reason. No, Again, no like reason. it's not like it's not like there was a like reconciliate restorative justice or something. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not even like at least McCarthy doesn't say like and Glanton yeah. called him to the front. He just falls in, like yeah. yeah, yeah. They did a restorative circle. They got all the stakeholders <laughs> together of the. The, the, the relevant parties. All right. As they are riding off into the afternoon, 
we might have to ride off into the uh, into the night yeah. because I think we still have a ton of shit to say about this. Yeah, we came in with the grandiose intentions to cover <laughs> all of the scenes that we wanted to, and I think we got carried away. But that that energy is good. Like uh, this was so fun. I can't. I yeah. I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I regret nothing too. I'm sorry to those of you who haven't read it. Yeah. Uh, but we got to do a part three. We have three more scenes to talk about. We have, we're going to just go back and reread them and probably have totally different ways <laughs> right. of thinking about them, you know? So, so yeah, I think we're going to push this off to a part three, but hopefully you, you know, this is like, it's a fucking nihilistic world. If we want to do three, it's the summer of Cormac McCarthy. He died. We can do a three part blood meridian Absolutely. episode. Our doing a three parter is, is us shaking our fist at the cold nihilistic universe. We're imposing, <laughs> totally. we're imposing our order. It is a form of resistance <laughs> that will ultimately lead to the Jacks. <laughs> Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.